morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Janice Hallett, whose latest novel, The Mysterious Case of the Alberton Angels, was recently published. Janice, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Well, thank you, Charlie. It's wonderful to be here. So you tell your novel not in what I would think of as sort of a traditional narrative, but in a series of of documents, of of emails, of transcripts, of text messages, all all sorts of other documents. Um, How do you think writing in the documentary form changes the relationship between the author and the reader? And, And how does it change the role of the reader? The role of the reader, I think, becomes rather more immersive that they are um, someone who is sifting through information rather than being fed it or having it wash over you like a normal narrative might. For the writer, well, from my point of view, I I can write from every character's point of view by using this method. So whoever's writing the text, the email, you know, the, um, the letter, I am in their shoes and seeing the world from their point of view. So so for me, it, it's wonderful. It's an exercise in getting into my characters. Mm-hmm. Do you do you see it like sort of connecting to the epistolary novels of the of the 18th century and, and later? Oh, definitely. For 100%. It, it's an updated version of that. It's people communicating to each other and it's simply how we communicate now rather than back then they were writing and sending their letters off today it's completely instant uh yeah it's it's an epistolary uh form and yeah. uh, i must say i'm I, i'm loving it so tell us a little bit about about your main character amanda and about this this sort of cold case that she's investigating the case of the alperton angels Yeah, absolutely. Amanda is my main character in this book. It's actually about two true crime authors, though, Amanda and her nemesis Oliver. Now, they're locked in competition to find a key interviewee. They're both um, former journalists and they're they're now true crime authors. And they have that news hound sensibility about them. Both of them are equally driven. Now, this interviewee thereafter was a baby 18 years ago when it was almost sacrificed by a cult that considered themselves to be angels sent to earth to destroy the newborn antichrist. And they they thought this baby, the baby of two of their teenage members, was that antichrist. Now, this was all 18 years ago. And happily, um, you know, it didn't happen that the teenage parents uh, took their baby, escaped, and all three disappeared back into the social care system. So Amanda and Oliver now, 18 years later, they know that baby is now an adult and can tell their sto- tell its story. So they are after that scoop. Uh, events transpire and they're, they're forced to work together and begin to uncover some alarming inconsistencies in that particular historical crime, that, that historical cult. And um, they realise that all was not quite as it seemed. Yeah, I think that's, the, that's a, sort of the key uh, phrase there, all was not quite as it seemed, which is, which is as we dive into this book, we kind of get to these 
these deeper layers. Um, a, a fictional novel about about true crime, uh, even though your true crime, of course, is obviously it's a fictional crime, but it's being presented as true crime. It, it sort of makes me question why, and I don't know if this is true in, in the UK as well, but it's certainly true in the US. We seem to be kind of obsessed with true crime these days. We're inundated with, with these um, documentaries, which often tease us along for eight episodes before finally telling us we never figured out who did it. You know, um, how do you, why do you think we have that obsession and how do you sort of tap into that obsession in this novel? That obsession is exactly what inspired this novel. I love true crime, uh, but I have this equal um, discomfort with getting entertainment from other people's misery. So that dilemma is is also wrapped up in it. But yeah, the podcast has transformed the true crime industry, which was huge anyway. I mean, there's books, films, documentaries. Now the podcast, uh, yeah, there's, there's the true crime for every taste. Um, <laughs> I think it comes from fear. Fear of, of crime. I don't think it, it comes so much from prurience or from voyeurism, even though there are elements of that. I think at the base of it all is our fear of falling victim to um, a murderer or other criminal. And we want to find out as much as possible about other crimes so that we can keep ourselves and our families safe. I think that's that's what's behind it. Knowledge is power and we want to know as much as we can about what leads people to commit crimes. And and that's that's for me is what's behind it. But it doesn't stop me feeling uncomfortable about enjoying the entertainment of true crime. Yeah, I think that's interesting you say that we that it's driven out of this fear. I think about whenever whenever you see on social media that someone your age and when you get to be my age, you see this more often, has passed away, the first thing you want to know is, well, what happened? So that I can be sure that it's not something that can happen to me. Did he fall down the stairs? Did he, you know? Um, so I think it's a similar thing with with the true crime, that we watch these things to, to prove to ourselves that, oh, I don't live in that neighborhood or I don't go to that street. Or, so it's not going to happen to me. I'll be, I'll be okay. Exactly. I totally agree with that. Yeah, you want, you're looking for something, some difference between you and the victim. Yeah. In the, and then you can say, yeah, I would not have fallen victim like that, which in the case of cults is um, different, I think, and very interesting because we often look at people who um, follow a cult leader and we think, how could they be so stupid? I would never be that. I would never fall for that line. But of course, it's not quite that simple. We could all fall for the line of a, a cult leader if we're vulnerable and we're all vulnerable at different times in our lives so that's a, an interesting a parallel and a lot of bets are off when it comes to the cult in, in trying to come up with your own fictional cold case um did you look at, at real life true crime crime cases what did what did your research process look like for this especially in terms of trying to come up with the idea of the cult and the crime and everything well i i i a big consumer of true crime and I love things about cults. So I had a lot of um, a bedrock of, of knowledge anyway, but I was lucky too in that the Nexium cult was in the news while I was writing this book. There were documentaries, books. Uh, I had a lot of material and not only did I have um, that evidence in front of me, the leader of the Nexium cult, Keith Ranieri, uh, filmed himself a lot. We have lots of video evidence of him delivering his talks and speaking to his followers, which we don't always have with with other um, cult leaders in history. So I was very lucky to to see a cult leader in action like that because I had to create a cult leader in Gabriel Angelis in here and cult um, followers 
as well. Um, so yeah, that I was very lucky in my research that I had that opportunity. How, how about you know, so you have a background in in journalism? How did how did your background as a journalist help you, not only with the research but also in creating these characters who are involved in investigative journalism? Well, I knew lots of Amandas and Olivers in my time, <laughs> but I never was one. And well, Amanda, she has a very um, tenuous relationship with the truth. She'll she'll lie in order to get to the bottom of a story. She doesn't care what anyone thinks of her. She'll get to the truth. She's very um, dogged in her determination. Now, I met people like that and I really looked up to them because they got the story and they got to the truth. Whereas myself, I was a lot shyer, a lot quieter. I didn't want to ask questions that riled people. I didn't want to upset people or I wanted to be liked. And um, I wasn't like that. So I would look up to, to those people awful as they often were uh, you know they got to the bottom of the story so yeah I think Amanda is someone I looked up to. So you said that you you wanted to be like and you didn't want to ask uncomfortable questions does that does that mean you really are enjoying being in a novelist because we do get we get to make these people up and we don't have to make them uncomfortable because they don't exist right? Absolutely yeah you get you live vicariously through your characters they can do things you would never dream of doing and that's uh, yeah that's the great joy of being a novelist and or any sort of creative writer i guess creating characters who will do what you would never do in life mm -hmm. one of the things that amanda says that that struck me and i think again this is because we see so much in the in the true crime especially in the podcast world of people who are not really um professional law enforcement or investigators or anything of that sort um revealing um information that, that other people never were able to get at and she talks about the role of amateurs she says she's wary of using amateurs even though she has a friend who tells her that they and this is a quote from the book throw themselves into it and work their butts off for a mention in a book about their favorite murder um can you talk a little bit about about the role that amateurs play in cold case investigation? Uh, yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword because podcasts and, and amateur sleuths, so to speak, serve to muddy the waters in some instances, but they have been instrumental in, in throwing up information the police had never got to the bottom of. And there's been some podcasts that have solved crimes where the police have not had the resource or the funding to do it. But a, a big inspiration for this book was I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Yeah. And uh, she worked with several uh, amateur sleuths and together they kept each other obsessed with with solving the murder of the, the Golden State, the Golden State Killer. Um, so with, without the others, she may not have been quite as obsessed as um, as she was. And that that in, intrigued me, really, that that people can come together and they're more than the sum of their parts. And the obsession between this small group of people um, was so detrimental, certainly for her. And uh, so that fascinated me, that dynamic. Um, and the documentary about, um, called it also I'll Be Gone in the Dark, well worth a watch if you're um, intrigued by the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels. That I'll Be Gone in the Dark was a big inspiration to me. Yeah, I thought that was a marvelous documentary. And it, and it also got at the fact that sometimes it's just a matter that law enforcement doesn't have the the people or the time to throw at 
a cold case. They're, you know, they're dealing with what happened this morning or this afternoon, you know, um, whereas, whereas the amateurs, they, they can invest the hours to go through files or whatever it might be. Um, I think so, uh, sometimes people can be more open if they're not talking to a law enforcement mm -hmm. representative. Yeah. Yeah. They, they would talk to um, an amateur, even, even someone who's not a journalist, an amateur sleuth could get information from people far easier than someone with um, a badge. One of the elements of, of investigative work that I sensed right away in this novel, and a lot of times I feel like in murder mysteries, it can be overlooked, is just the number of dead ends that, that an investigator encounters. I mean, and sometimes in, in a mystery, you know, they just think each thing leads to another thing and there's not these sort of blind alleys. Can, can you talk about how you incorporate that that issue of encountering dead ends without making it frustrating for the reader? Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult because to incorporate those dead ends, you're also using up time and space. The novel has to, it has to stop at some yeah. point. You can't, yeah. it can't be indefinitely long. Uh, so you have to balance that sense of frustration that the investigator has with, of course, having been a, having a uh, moving on for the reader and for the investigator. Um, so I think that's possibly why a lot of mysteries do um, have their narrative fall into place quite quickly, or the first person that the investigator speaks to is the person with the answer that leads them to the next thing. Right. That's just not real life. I mean, real life is um, far duller and more mundane than that. Um, but I, I hope to cast a balance, I think, between the two in this, because Amanda does go down some dead ends and um, she does have the odd... Um, contact and um encounter that isn't as useful as others but yeah the to get the the genuine feeling you probably need a book three times as long with a lot of um stuff that goes nowhere in it yeah i mean i think about i've heard you know interviews with law enforcement who say well what you read in in crime novels is not it's not what it's like it's it's much more boring than that most most of the time and um and i do like the way this sort of hit, hits that balance i mean it, i thought of, about the movie um all the president's men um which i find an absolutely riveting film even though there's scenes where all they're doing is looking through library cards and knocking on door after door but you got the sense of of the frustration and yet at the same time it managed to propel you forward with its narrative um yeah, that's the skill, isn't it? The skill of pacing um, a work, whether it's a script or whether it's a book. Um, if you've got, uh, nothing needs to be happening, but so long as there's something that we're enjoying from the scene, something that we're taking from it, it might just be something to do with a, that character or to do with the atmosphere of the piece. Um, in that case, you can have some, you can have a dead end if it, if it takes you somewhere else in terms of character or in terms of entertainment. Yeah. Now you, you get, I think, right away at the way that journalists will will flatter, will cajole, and as you said earlier, even will lie to to possible sources in order to get the story that they're trying to get. Can you address a little bit that the the issue of ethics in journalism when it comes to seeking out crime victims who who may or may not want to be found, and and maybe not being completely honest with sources. That's a big a big thing in um, in this book because of course this baby that the everybody's looking for may not know that they were the Alperton Angels baby that this is possibility is um, presented early on uh, that Amanda and Oliver don't know whether this baby was um, adopted or, or what happened to it 
Um, so they may not know that they were once almost sacrificed by a cult. And how are they going to tell them? And do, do they worry too much? Amanda doesn't worry too much about that, whereas um, other journalists that she speaks to do have that thought. And how, how would you break it to them? What are they going to think? Uh, what will it do to them? Uh, so, yeah, there, there are certain ethics, but I think there are journalists who are so hungry. I think if you're a, a real news hound, you're so hungry for the next story that things like that don't matter. And it possibly it's an empathy thing. It's a, a self-serving thing, but it can also be it's something to do with your makeup, because I could never do that. I could never work in those levels of um, where ethics were such a fine line. Mm -hmm. uh, other people would uh, happily overstep that line although as we we know here in the uk from the um hacking phone hacking um yeah. issues that we've had um it's you know it's a fine line between what's right and wrong in finding the truth and getting to the the bottom of a story yeah i think i thought the idea of having the 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 victim be um not know that they were the victim be be a baby at the time um, was pretty brilliant because to me, I, I feel like that adds this sort of whole other level of it's not just going to somebody and saying we're gonna we're gonna resurrect this difficult time you had in your life or this traumatic experience. It's gonna be we're gonna tell you about a traumatic experience you don't know that you had. That's that's a <laughs> whole different ballgame. I felt like yeah, oh, absolutely. It's a, quite a dilemma, isn't it? Because what if if that was your job, your job to tell them? Really, if you're going to do your job properly. Um, a, a harp, someone who who carries the truth with them, who is a truth finder. What do you do? You know, it's it, it's quite a dilemma. So I want to I want to go back and talk about form some because I, I think you know we haven't talked about a lot of what I think of as documentary novels um, on the show in the past, and um, this is one I've, I've I'm working on a novel right now that's not fully documentary, but it does incorporate a lot of documents, and so I, it's it's very much in the front of my of my mind at the time. Um, and one question I had for you is, do you, do you ever find yourself sort of longing for narration, going, how in the world am I going to get this piece of information that's so important, you know, worked into a document when when I could just have a narrator say, this happened, you know? Very occasionally. <laughs> Most of the time, I can think of a way to get things across. But there is the odd thing that I think, wow, you know, if this was just a normal novel. I could have this with no problem. I could I could make this quite a, a good moment of revelation. But now how am I going to do it? Right. Uh, so, yeah, there are the odd uh, moments like that. But mostly I can think of a way to reveal it. Yeah, I'm, I've done this is what my third, fourth, if you count my novella that I had out before Christmas is now yeah. my fourth novel. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had a bit of experience now. And uh, hopefully, hopefully I won't um, fall down that that rabbit hole too often. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the some of the things that maybe I find a little bit more difficult and you have, one has to use a little bit more imagination with are are the more subtle aspects of the novel thing, things like um, a foreshadowing or symbolism and these things. And I think about the, you have this moment where um, she's talking to the priest that that is in charge of the church where some of these people came 18 years ago, and he gives this long description of a stained glass window. Um, and I think it's a great example of how you can get some of those kind of traditionally narrative aspects into into a document. I mean, the document is just the transcript of this conversation that that she has. Tell us a little bit about that moment and and what you were trying to accomplish there. 
that you spotted that i think only another writer would spot that <laughs> it is yeah she visits a church and um it, it transpires the church is famous for its stained glass window that depicts a biblical story and this biblical story is explained and it has certain elements that resound i think during the book or will you know have relevance i think to amanda and, and the story as it happens and uh, yeah that's that's an example really of, of getting one of those foreshadowing moments and and a moment perhaps that speaks to wider themes rather than exact um instances and episodes that will ha will happen in the novel so yeah that's um that's one of the tricks of the trade well, I'm I, just so you know, I'm imagining it as a Burne Jones window. So, you know, I've kind of got it all played <laughs> out in my head. <laughs> so, the, I mean, the fact that that she does go to this uh, church brings brings up another question, and that is um, the the place of religion in this novel. It's um, religion, it's its use, it's abuse. It enters into the narrative in a number of different ways. Can can you talk about about the importance of religion? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is a book about a cult and about people who fell for a cult and someone who started a cult and, and you know, continues to run his own cult more or less from prison. And I, I read a wonderful book while I was researching it. It was called Cultish by mm. Amanda Montell. And she talks about the language of, of persuasion uh, that is that pervades our society. And it it starts really with the religions that we're brought up with from childhood. And it covers brands, branding, uh, gyms that want you to keep going to the gym, the coffee house that wants you to carry their cup around, everything. There are lots of people throughout society who want you to belong to them one way and another. And religion is only one of them, but it's a big one. Uh, for most of us. And it's one that starts earliest in our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, several characters in this book make the parallel between belief, um, the Alpton Angels' belief that they were angels sent to, to Earth to to kill the newborn Antichrist, and generally people who believe in religions, um, who believe in stories that are out of this world as part of their belief systems. Now, it's in, it's fairly controversial, I suppose, but because a lot of these religions are world religions, millions of people believe them they're not the small cults where there's only four members like the Alpton angels mm -hmm. but there's not much difference and yeah, I, 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 that, I always find it interesting to think about where is the line between something that's reasonable to believe and something that's unreasonable to believe and, and for right, most people absolutely. the line is it if you believe something that's beyond what i believe then it's unreasonable um yeah that, that they everyone seems to draw their own personal line yeah it, it's extraordinary isn't it we all have that that belief we all have those things that we look at that think well that's not that's not right but this is what i do and that is right mm -hmm. and it's um you know we're, we're all subject subjects aren't we we're all subjective subjectively looking at the world and perceiving the world but yeah cultish um expands the idea that we're all victims of cult speak and we're we're all su subject to persuasion every day of our lives from big business to big pharma to religions to potentially cults and uh, it is fascinating to read it you'll you'll never look at um your gym instructor again in the same light because <laughs> gym, gyms are they want you to belong to them and they will create that um that following mentality in you it's it's really good read yeah 
One of the things I found when I was working on this novel where I did incorporate a lot of documents is that sometimes the the physical appearance and structure of these original documents, um, whether it would be um, a coroner's report or what a will looks like or what a police record, arrest record looks like, that those would begin to sort of guide my creativity. I would see, oh, well, in the coroner's report, they, they say this and this and this. And so that would suggest things to me. Did, did you find that? Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between sort of the form and appearance of documents and your own your own creative mind? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, if I have to write a document, I'll source pictures of that document as it appears online. Uh, I don't usually seek to recreate it exactly for, for several reasons, uh, not least one that there's often a lot of extraneous information in the document as you know, the real document that I haven't got time or space for on the page. And also there's a, an issue with reproduction on the page of a novel, especially when it's produced in paperback. Uh, everything is much smaller. And if you have a, a document that is meant to be A4, it doesn't quite work when it's smaller. It's very difficult to read. So there are certain practical considerations like that. But yeah, I'll always look at the the style of language, I think, is the big thing for me. If it sounds accurate or sounds accurate-ish, there's some terminology there that's not not too impenetrable, but that would give it some sort of authentic feel. Yeah, I'll pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah, I found I found it fascinating too. I I did play around with trying to in somewhat reproduce the look, and you do. I mean, you do have different typefaces and and mm -hmm. um, arrangement on the page for say text messages versus emails versus. So so there is there is some of that. Um, I I created a Wikipedia page for a fictional character in my novel, which was great fun to do. And then you Excellent. then you start thinking, oh, what can, what hints can I put in the footnotes? You know that would be <laughs> the re, you know. But I digress. Uh, yeah. You you mentioned earlier you you mentioned a little something about point of view, and I, I think point of view becomes really interesting in a documentary novel because on the one hand, the reader doesn't know anything that Amanda doesn't know, right? She she has access to these these documents. They're coming through her. Um, in many cases, they're labeled at the top with her description of what the document is, you know, email exchange between me and Oliver or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, the documents themselves do present the points of views of, of many different characters. Can, can you talk about the ways in which you're able to manipulate point of view in, in a novel like this? Well, this, um, this novel, it, it was uh, a dream because, of course, Amanda interviews people and her assistant transcribes those interviews. So we have um, those points of view so we can see Amanda's questions. And she also leaves her tape running when she tells them she's not recording them, which is very useful for us. Um, and, and happily, Ellie, her transcriber, does tell her off for it, but it doesn't stop her doing it again. Um, so that creating those, actually, that's three points of view. So some of those uh, interviews have Amanda's, um, the interviewee, and also Ellie, the transcriber. So you're having all sorts of points of view in just one document. That's fabulous for the plot and for character. Um, but yeah, we, we're having all sorts of um, documents. I should say this, all of the documents have come through Amanda because they're all from a safe deposit box that she's put them in. And what we're reading is um, not her book that she wrote. It's the um, research material. From her so yes it is all hers that she's put in here and she's um stashed it all away in a safe deposit box and we're reading it so yeah that's um another 
element. But the point of view uh, thing is is interesting. It's something that I I much prefer writing from the point of view of a character rather than a third person narrative because you can draw the reader into that character as well. And if you can draw the reader into that character's shoes, you can help them see the world from a different point of view to their own. And that's something that really inspires me as a writer. I'm glad you mentioned Ellie Cooper because she, I think she's one of my favorite characters in this novel, even <laughs> though we, she doesn't really appear on stage very much. But as she said, she transcribes these interviews and she has these wonderful little interjections and you're able to use her to skip over the boring bits of an interview. You know, she just go, oh, you started talking about the weather here and that was not interesting. You know, um, talk talk a little bit about how, how you use her to to interject some humor into the novel as well. Well, do you know, when she, when I started um, with her, when I first used her early on in the uh, the novel's gestation, I really only meant her because of what you just said to, to someone to say, well, I'd cut out all the boring right. um, bits of your interview. I thought oh, that's going to be handy. We can just get to the core of every interview because we got the, this transcriber um, working things out for us. But as the novel went on, uh, Ellie became more and more of a character. She was yeah. asserting herself and putting herself into those interviews and telling Amanda what she thinks of her or her opinion of the interviewee or, or where they were in the story. She was giving her opinion of what she thought might be happening. And that grew and grew and grew. So she became that character and she really became the character the reader is ultimately with because she's looking in as we're looking in on Amanda's research and, and on those la last few, um, the months before Amanda finished her research, we're looking in on those months um, almost from above with Ellie um, as Amanda's and her um, her uh, her story plays out. Yeah. So yeah, Ellie, Ellie is my favorite character in it too. And you mentioned that, um, you know, these are just the documents, her documentary research, um, but there are things like, here's, here's her attempt at, um, the beginning of chapter one, you know, the, an yes. early draft of that. So, so we get this talk about sort of using this as a way to to explore the creative process and explore explore Amanda's process as a writer. Yeah, that's she. Amanda works in a similar way that I sometimes work in that she she needs to get that first page down in order to know how the rest of it is going to go. So she starts her book several times as she discovers um, particular angles on, on the story. So she'll start it from one character's point of view, then she'll find out something happened to another character and she'll open the book with something to do with them. So we get where she's at in her research with every first page she writes. And that's um, it's quite an, an interesting way to have done it. I think it's quite... I mean, you might say it's a cheat. I think if you're another writer, you might say that's a bit of a cheat, Janice. Why, why are you doing that? But um, no, it was it was a, it was kind of how I might work, and it's sometimes how I work if I'm writing uh, a journalism or a factual piece. I'll start it several times as I research, so I've got all the time. I've got I've got that basis. I know that there's a safety blanket waiting for me. I've got that first paragraph, or I've got that first page even though I might rewrite it when I discover something else. it's. Uh, I, I think readers always like um, what I say, what I think of as sort of pulling back the curtain on on a 
field of study or interest that they they don't know much about in in my novels it's the it's the world of rare books and another but but i feel like here you're sort of pulling back the curtain on this world of investigative journalism and and teaching us something you know obviously we're following this particular case but you're also teaching us something about the process which i think is is something readers are really going to enjoy oh definitely and also the attitude i think of the people who work in it there are some other true crime authors that amanda um, is in touch with. And I think they sometimes have a, a sort of blasé attitude to what they're dealing with, they're dealing with terrible crimes. Um, but I see it as like, rather like the police and a police officer feels terrible that someone has been murdered, but they can't have their emotions bubbled to the surface. They have to put those aside in order to solve the puzzle or solve who done it. Mm-hmm. And I think the reader of um, mystery novels and crime novels tends to be in that similar position they're interested in the puzzle and they're interested in, in who does it, even though they're not necessarily feeling the emotions of the loss of that murder victim, for example. So we get that very much with these journalists who cope with the awfulness of what they're dealing with by with some gallows humour and some flippant remarks that that simply protect them, protect their emotions from um, the awfulness of what they're dealing with. I think that's an interesting point that when we read mysteries, we have a wildly different reaction to death and murder than we would have in real life. When we come across a body in the pages of the mystery, we go, oh, wonderful. Now there's a crime to solve. Whereas if we were to come across a body in real life, we would, I hope, would have a very different reaction from that. You know, um, Let's talk about Oliver for a minute. We, you, you mentioned him. He's He is a, a bit of a nemesis. He's it's from, from Amanda's past. He's working on the same case. It's you know, maybe they're in competition, maybe they're working together. Um, but she says something about him that really resonated with me. She she writes of Oliver that he doesn't appreciate his privilege. Can, can you talk about the ways, with, with particular reference to Oliver, but the, the ways in which the issue of privilege enters into the novel? And, and, and what role does it play in journalism in general in these? It's, well, it's an interesting one. I'm, I with Amanda and Oliver, I wanted to I wanted a double act at the centre of this novel because mm-hmm. um, it was a contrast to my previous two novels, um, and I wanted them to be not so much romantically involved, but I wanted them to be a contrast. But I also wanted them to be equally driven. So this, I wanted them to have that in common: that the drive and the ambition and the the news hound sensibility. I wanted them to have an equal measure of energy in that direction but they're from extremely different backgrounds i mean oliver is um he's not aristocratic but he is far more privileged he's far more educated and amanda has really brought herself up we learn a lot um, about her later on and we realize she has her contacts in social services for a particular reason in her background Uh, so she's really fought to be um, this news hound. And it actually goes to show that um, being a, a good journalist is not much to do with your education or your literacy even. It's a sensibility. It's a, a hunger for the story. It's more important in many, many instances than ability to write. Um, it's And Amanda has that sense, even though she also has not the ability to write. Um, it's Oliver who has the education, but he's less of a um, go-getter than she is. He's he's floundering. When we meet him at the beginning of the novel, he's at a difficult time in his life. His father's uh, just died. He's at a loose end with work. He's not, He's had to leave one job and he's 
struggling to write this book he's trying to write himself. Uh, so he's at a difficult time, even though Amanda is at the height of her powers. So there's a lot of ups and downs between Amanda and Oliver that finally uh, clash and come together. But yeah, privilege is uh, a big part of that because Amanda is ultimately hungrier than Oliver is and she is prepared to do more than he is to get um, to find the success that she's after. Mm -hmm. Amanda's writing these these documents or whoever is creating the documents but in many cases it's her own emails or her her text messages and notes um not for the reader right but but for herself so she's using abbreviations and emojis and argot of her business and of her life that may not be familiar to the person who's picking up this novel and and reading it can you talk about the way that because i think you do a really good job of this the way that you use those maybe unfamiliar terms i'm thinking terms like vox pop and bod and there's there's quite a few <laughs> in a way that that you know a middle-aged american guy like me will understand <laughs> what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i use the the term bod um amanda uses it a lot and, and oliver yeah. does too they simply mean a contact or a person they're going to talk to a bod a person a people a people and it's it that was the term that i always used when i was a journalist it's probably different it's probably quite parochial in that that different um, areas, different regions have different names or different times. They'll call that something different. Uh, but they talk about bods. I think it is um it's lovely to have those things in a novel because it can really draw you in um to a secret world to give you um that secret language that people are using. As long as you explain, um you always have to have a character ask what does that mean? And um yeah that's uh, that was quite fun to get into that world and into the terminology that they used. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It brings it brings the reader into this this secret society, if you will, and um, you know the same is true with with text abbreviations. And because there were every every now and then I would have to stop and think, okay, what might that stand for? It's like, oh, it's probably <laughs> this. And then you'd use it again, you know, a, a few sentences later. I'm like, yeah, that's de it's definitely what I thought it was because it makes sense in that context also, you know. Um, but I have the same issue when my children send me texts, so it's not really any different. <laughs> <laughs> One one of the things we we talk a lot about on the show is is structure, um, mm -hmm. and some some novelists will challenge traditional structures in different ways. But we still sort of generally expect kind of we're probably going to have chapters. We're probably going to have something that feels like an an act or a scene um, with, with sort of major plot developments at, at, near the end of that act or that section or that chapter. Um, but talk about how you how you work in that sort of overall novelistic structure when you're dealing with these fairly short little pieces that um, are not necessarily all of a of a, the same type and um, are are not sort of proceeding in a traditional narrative way. Well, do you know structure is something that I look at um, in depth after I've written my first draft. Mm -hmm. I'll write my first draft uh, completely off. The top of my head almost i won't make many notes i'll just go and i'll write chronologically through the novel as it happens to me as the characters draw me through it and i'll look at certain elements of the structure afterwards and that's when when and where the revelations come um how they're made um the fact you know you have to balance characters through a novel so you can't have them appear at the beginning 
and then at the end you know they have to appear all the way through it yeah. um, so I'll look at where characters appear and disappear uh, I'll look at that so structure for me is reverse engineered after my first draft that I've felt quite free writing and I've you know followed my characters and I've gone down various dead ends and you know blind blind ends to to find that um to find the story and find the themes it's only at the end of my first draft I know what the themes are and they and then I can go back and pull them out of earlier scenes and change different scenes in the beginning to make them fit the end so for me structure is a kind of a dynamic thing it's not something I'll work out at the beginning and stick to I'll, oh, yeah. I'll, this reminds me of something that I often tell young writers who are having trouble getting started. I say, you know, it's much easier to make a novel out of 300 pages of TypeScript than it is to make a novel out of 300 blank pages. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I like the idea that, of you're sort of creating this body of work and then finding a way to make that into a novel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's often how, how it feels, particularly with the kind of work I do where, as you say, it's quite bitty. Mm -hmm. um, but that those bits all have meaning and purpose in there so it's not too bad a job really now I've, I've written five novels I'm a lot more experienced and and have an I a better idea my first novel The Appeal uh, when my first draft of that was 120,000 words long and at least 40,000 words of that was one character stalking another with emails so that was quite a read as you can imagine so yeah I, I have got better at structure as i go along um i think as as my novels have have evolved the the full title of your novel is the mysterious case of the alperton angels and i just can't help but thinking of classic mystery titles i mean obviously the mysterious affair at styles comes comes to mind um what what earlier mystery writers have been influences for you well i have to say i have read more Agatha Christie since I've been published as a as a crime writer than before. I was always a big fan of Christie on screen, yeah. um, but I had um, a big gap in my reading. I think I read Enid Blyton when I was a child, mm -hmm. and then I floundered. We didn't have any books at home. I didn't really have any guidance as to what to read, so I didn't read much then until I started studying English and reading the classics. So I had Enid Blyton and Pony books. When I was a child and then I read Dickens and the Brontes uh, so there's a big gap I should have been reading Agatha Christie when I was in my teenage years because that I think would have served me very well as a as a reader and as a writer but now I've come to her rather late in life as for mystery writers who've influenced me I would have to go back and say Enid Blyton mm -hmm. and her mysteries really installed in me uh, a love of sleuthing and solving puzzles it through a book, um, the famous five, Secret Seven, um, the Mallory Towers and St. Clair's books. Um, brilliant. I mean, whatever you think of Enid Blyton, she had a most amazing narrative style yeah. that absolutely hypnotizes you. And it hypnotizes uh, young people and children, readers even now. Um, and that's that's amazing. To me, Enid Blyton is the ultimate example of uh, of an author who is tremendously popular in one country but never made the transition to 
another country that speaks the same language. I mean, I think my daughter, we lived in England for about six months in the late 90s. And, and my daughter, who is now has her own child, is one of the few Americans I know who read Enid Blyton as a child because oh, wow. she fell in love with it when we were when we were in England, Famous Five and The Secret Seven yeah. and all of that. But, um, but she's just never, for some reason, never made the transition in the way that um, Winnie the Pooh and Narnia and some other uh-huh. classic English children's books have. Um, it's interesting, there. isn't it? Very interesting. Yeah. And yet she's extremely popular around the world. Oh, yeah. Blanche, yeah. Even now. I mean, even now. yeah. I mean, my second novel, The Twyford Code, was quite um, a, an homage to uh, to Enid Blyton. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's an author in there, Edith Twyford, who um, is the Enid Blyton of, of my fictional world. Yeah, yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us some insight into you and into your writing. So we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? I love the word desperate because it's so onomatopoeic. Desperate. (laughs) What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? The word discombobulated on one hand is a nice word. On the other hand, it's not a great one to read. (laughs) Where's your favorite place to write? My desk where I'm sitting right now. And where could you never write? On a train or a plane. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? The split infinitive. What's the first book you remember reading? Oh, it would be a a Dr. Zeus, Cat in the Hat. What are you reading now? I am reading um, a Harriet Tice novel called um a lesson in cruelty what book would you like to have written oh goodness um i think the wasp factory by ian banks Hmm. or maybe the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy by douglas adams yeah what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will a historical book and finally what would you like to hear a reader tell you I didn't read books until I read one of yours, and now I'm a reader. Hmm. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Janice Hallett, whose novel, The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels, is available wherever books are sold. Janice, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, You can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Curtis Chin about his book, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.